0: John chapter 5. If you want to turn there with me and follow along, there, there is a Bible in many of the chairs in front of you. If you're using that Bible, it's on page 945. John 1 through 12, uh, sometimes called the book of signs, and we're going to be reading first here about the third sign, this third miracle that John records for us. Chapter 5, we'll start in verse 1. After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath, and the law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, The man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk? They asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was, because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus responded to them, My father is still working, and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying to kill him, all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. And Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing, and he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. And just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son also gives life to whom he wants. The father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son so that all people may honor the son just as they honor the father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also has he granted to the Son to have life in himself. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, empowered by your Spirit, Bring glory to Jesus, our rock and our Redeemer. We pray in his name. Amen. Every day I use products that I really don't understand how they work, like Google Meet. How is it that I can be in a conversation with people from all over the world and we can experience everyone's live reactions? I have no idea if my life depended on it. I couldn't explain how Google Meet works but I'm sure someone at Google knows how, and probably some of you know how it works. Um, Then there's wonders of the the natural world that even the best astronomers admit they can't really understand, like the dark matter that makes up 90% of the universe. Currently, they can see that dark matter interacts with ordinary matter through gravity, but few scientists would claim to understand it. And if that's true about the created world, if it's filled with wonders that human intelligence has yet to really comprehend, how much more true is that of God? One of the great theologians of the early church famously said, if you have understood God then what you have understood is not God. And by that, Augustine was confronting the hubris of any creature thinking that we've figured out the essence of who God is. He wasn't suggesting that God is completely unknowable, but he was saying that we can only know God insofar as God is pleased to reveal himself to us, which is why we should be so grateful for Jesus' words in John chapter 5. Who better to show us the Jesus you should know than Jesus himself? If you want to find the clearest statement of who Jesus is in Jesus' own words, look no further than John chapter 5. But notice what happens in this chapter where Jesus tells us so clearly who he is in his own words. This is the first time in John's gospel that people actually start start talking about killing Jesus. Did you see that in verse 18? It says this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. We're at a tipping point here. In the Gospel of John. And the momentum of this murderous opposition is just going to keep on building from this point on. So I want to ask three questions of this passage this morning. Number one, what does Jesus do to provoke such rage? Number two, what does Jesus claim in response to this rage? And number three, how will you respond to the claims of Jesus? So first question, what does Jesus do to provoke this rage? It all starts with a miracle, a sign. We're back in Jerusalem, and Jesus enters this theater of human misery at the pool of Bethesda, where all kinds of suffering people have been waiting to enter the pool when the waters are stirred in hopes of being cured of their affliction. And Jesus, who knows all about humanity, who knows what's in our hearts, who knows what's in our past, fixes his attention on this man who has been an invalid for 38 years. His muscles have atrophied. His flesh and nervous system are dead. There's no public health care system. He's living a shadow of life, excluded from society. He's a nobody in the eyes of people, but he's not a nobody to Jesus. Out of all the people gathered at that pool, Jesus chooses to care for this man in his misery and hopelessness. Look at verse 6 and listen to the question Jesus addresses to this man. Do you want to be healed? Doesn't that seem like a strange question? Of course this man wants to be healed. Why else would he be sitting at this pool year after year after year? Isn't it obvious he wants to be healed? Or is it possible that Jesus is probing underneath the surface into something deeper in this man's heart? This man's sense of despair and helplessness comes out in his answer to Jesus in verse 7 he's not expecting this day to be any different than the last 38 years of his life. But look at what happens. Without any expression of faith on this man's part, without any physical ability in this man's body, Jesus commands him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. It reminds me of what happens back in Genesis chapter 1 when the Everything's formless and void, and into the darkness, what does God do? He speaks. Let there be light, and the light appears. The same thing happens in the way this man responds to Jesus' command in verse 9. At once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. He didn't have to go through months of physical therapy and rehabilitation. Instantaneously, shriveled legs that were atrophied, start to be filled with vitality and vigor, and he's walking around Jerusalem. And you can imagine how people would respond to this miracle. Of course, they're going to be thrilled. They're going to be happy that that someone who has suffered for so long is now walking with freedom, right? Well, think again. John sounds an ominous note at the end of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. Jesus could have picked any day of the week to heal that man, but he didn't. He picked the Sabbath to do this miracle. And that's not a point these Jewish religious leaders are willing to overlook. They protest. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed on the Sabbath. Isn't that kind of absurd? Here this this man's walking, and they're upset that he's taken up his bed on the Sabbath. Now let's be clear, what Jesus did was not a violation of God's law. But over the course of time, in order to make sure no one broke the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders added a whole retinue of of additional prohibitions to the law of God. 39 things you must or must not do on the Sabbath to make sure no one would break the Sabbath. And if you want to know what they cared about more, their tradition or human flourishing, just look at how they react to, to this man who's walking around Ju- Jerusalem. Do they rejoice that something amazing has just happened in their midst? Do they hear the echoes of the prophet Isaiah, who in chapter 35 speaks of the time when, when God's people would be redeemed and ransomed and restored from their exile? And one of the signs of that redemption is that the lame man shall leap like a deer. No. They don't recognize any of that. They're angry. They're thinking, someone's got to pay for this. And the man who was healed doesn't even know the name of his healer. And Jesus has slipped away. Later in verse 14, Jesus finds the man in the temple and he says something to him that addresses the deeper healing that Jesus is even more concerned about in this man's life. Jesus says to him, look at verse 14, sin is no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Why does Jesus say this? It's not because Jesus wants us to think that every time we see someone suffering, there's a direct link between that person's suffering and their sin. We know that that is not true because in John chapter 9, with the man born blind, Jesus makes it clear that it wasn't because of that man's sin or his parents. We often cannot trace a link between someone's sin and someone's suffering. Sometimes, though, sometimes our suffering is a consequence of sin. And in this man's case, we cannot say for sure whether Jesus is suggesting that there is a link between his suffering and his sin. But we do know this. Jesus did a wonderful work of physical healing But he is more concerned about this man's salvation from sin and his holiness in life than he is about that man's healing. And Jesus is far more concerned about that for you and for me, too. There is for all humanity a fate far worse than physical suffering. Sometimes people say, all that really matters is that you're healthy. That's the most important thing. Jesus says, oh, no. Oh, no, that is not all that really matters. I mean, think about it. In Jesus' mind, who's better off? Johnny Erickson Tata, who for the last 55 years has lived as a quadriplegic, but she rejoices in knowing that her sins are forgiven. She lives a life that brings glory to Jesus. There's holiness through the Holy Spirit in her life. Who's better off, Johnny Erickson Tata or a woman who has lived a long life of physical health, but has never seen the need to cry out to Jesus for the forgiveness of her sins and who has never received salvation from Jesus. Jesus would say, Johnny is far better off. And Jesus would want everyone here to know that to die with your sins unforgiven and with salvation unreceived is a fate Far worse than 38 years of paralysis. Something worse than paralysis Jesus would want to save you from. In verse 15, this man goes away and he tells the Jews it was Jesus who healed him, and they are furious. We sing a song, an old hymn sometimes called My Song Is Love Unknown. And in one of the verses, it considers the crowds who are crying out, crucify him, thirsting for Jesus' death. And then the hymn asks this searching question, why? What has my Lord done to cause this rage and spite? He made the lame to run. He gave the blind their sight. What injuries? Yet these are why the Lord Most High so cruelly dies? That brings us to our second point this morning. What does Jesus claim in response to such rage? On the surface, the Jewish leaders are angry, we read in verse 15, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath. That was the first domino to fall. Jesus is not afraid to challenge their traditional additions to God's law. He cares more about the welfare of people than he does about legalistic rules and regulations. So they start persecuting Jesus in verse 15. But healing people on the Sabbath is probably not enough to make them want to kill Jesus. It's what Jesus says next. That makes the second domino fall. It's what he claims about himself that moves them from persecution to murderous rage. And just think of all the ways Jesus could have avoided this had he wanted to avoid it. He could have just disappeared. He could have explained how the law of God forbade commerce on the Sabbath. But it didn't forbid works of mercy to relieve human suffering. But Jesus isn't concerned about trying to avoid opposition. He isn't trying to make peace with these Jewish leaders. To the contrary, Jesus seizes an opportunity here to make some very bold statements about himself, to tell us who he is in his own words. Look at verse 17. Jesus responded to them, My father, that's bold, the Jews might have said our Father, but they, they didn't speak of Jesus, as God as my Father. Jesus says, my Father is still working, and I am working also. What Jesus is saying here is basically no one objects to the idea of God working on the Sabbath because we acknowledge that his work is greater than the Sabbath. And I am working too because my work is greater than the Sabbath. God is my father, and he and I are working together. We're not constrained by your laws and traditions about the Sabbath because we made the Sabbath. In fact, the Sabbath is a signpost pointing to a greater rest that I have come to bring into the world. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Come to me, and I will give you rest. Because I am the true Sabbath. Of course, Jesus isn't saying all of that explicitly. But he doesn't need to. Because they understand exactly what Jesus is saying. And they are outraged when they hear him talking like this. As if he is in a special, unique relationship with the Father. How dare he claim such things? Back to verse 18. Let's read the rest of that verse now. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Now sometimes today, people will say, Jesus never claimed to be God. He was just a good moral teacher. But this idea of Jesus being God, that's something Christians added many years later. If anyone ever suggests that to you, this is a great passage to bring them to. Because verse 18, what happens after verse 18 shows how wrong that idea is. If Jesus did not view himself as God, this would have been the moment to clear up that misunderstanding. But instead of saying, oh dear, forgive me, I never intended for you to think that about me, Jesus instead capitalizes on this moment to give one of the deepest, most elaborate descriptions of his own view of his relationship to the Father, and he makes it unmistakably clear that he does indeed believe that he is equal with God. Now listen, from verses 19 onwards, we are in the deep end of the swimming pool. And I shudder, to think of preaching these verses in some shallow way that makes you think that I think that I've figured it all out, that I've gotten to the bottom of this, to just explain every word and act like, okay, now we understand. No, 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 no. I hope in, in, in walking through these verses from the mouth of our Savior to simply lead you to a place, a posture of humility and adoration and worship of Jesus for who he is, because that's all we can do in response to Jesus telling us who he really is, is worship him. I want to acknowledge that I've been helped much and always helped much by reading and listening to other pastors and scholars. And this week in particular, in this section, my friend, Pastor Mike Bulmore, was so helpful in isolating and identifying Two main themes Jesus is emphasizing here about his relationship with the Father. I'm going to follow his line of thought and expression closely here. There are two main things Jesus wants us to see about himself. First, Jesus is stressing that there is a unity between himself and God the Father. And second, Jesus wants us to see that he has authority from this perfect unity with the Father to play a unique role in the accomplishment of God's purposes. So unity and authority. Notice what Jesus claims about the unity between himself and the Father. Jesus claims there is a perfect unity of will, of purpose, of thought, of action, and of pleasure between him and the Father. Such a unity that Jesus has one of his truly, truly statements in verse 19. I don't know why the CSB only says one truly. The NIV has very truly. The ESV has truly, truly. And it's important. There's three of these truly, truly statements in this this paragraph. And when Jesus says truly, truly, he means this is something very important. Very, very important for you to understand. So look at verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you. The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Notice, Jesus doesn't say here that He just imitates His Father in some ways or in some things. No. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The Father is working. The son is working. What the father is doing, the son is doing. And this is a unity that springs from love. Look at verse 20. This verse takes us to the very heart of the father heart of God toward his son Jesus. When it says, for the father loves the son That's one of the effects Jesus wants these words to have on our hearts, that the love that is in the Father toward his Son would fill our hearts for the Son, that we would love the Son the way the Father loves the Son. And out of his love for the Son, he shows him everything he is doing, and he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So we can never claim to understand God ourselves. But Jesus, the Son, claims that because he is loved by the Father, there is nothing that is unfathomable to Jesus about his Father. Jesus does know the depths of who God God is because the Father shows him everything. He holds nothing back. In verse 23, this unity of will and purpose and thought and action and love is so complete and so extensive that if you don't honor the Son, you're not honoring the Father. And if you're not honoring the Father, you won't be honoring the Son. But if you do honor Jesus, the Son of God, you are at the same time honoring the Father. So make no mistake about it. Jesus is standing face-to-face right now with people who want to kill him because he is making himself equal with God. And instead of backing down, Jesus doubles down. He goes deeper into exactly what it means for him to be perfectly one with the Father. The unity is so complete that the Father's will is the Son's will. The Father's purpose is the Son's purpose. The Father's mission is the Son's mission. The Father's work is the Son's work. Each is distinct from the other. Each has his own role, but they are united in one purpose, one will, one work, being shared by both and accomplished by both flawlessly and effortlessly in an unbroken, perfect harmony. I hesitate because there's no illustration that's adequate. And most of the guys in this room probably only accidentally happen to see skating figure periscating in the Olympics. But in case you ever walk into the room and you see it on the TV, there's an illustration sometimes of this complete harmony, complete unity between two people doing the same thing. And Jesus is saying there is this unbroken kind of harmonious unity between the Father and myself. And claims like this are going to make them want to stone Jesus. That claims like this are what's going to get Jesus crucified in the end. But Jesus wants us to see more than the fact that there's a perfect, unbroken, complete oneness and unity between him and his father. He also wants us to see that in this unity of purpose and mission... The Father has entrusted to His Son unique, special authority to do two things the authority to give life to those who hear His voice and believe, and the authority to execute judgment on the world. Let's think a little bit about Jesus' authority. We see it in verse 21, the authority to give life. Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will, to whom He is pleased to give it. In other words, when we see Jesus doing miracles, like healing the son of an official in Capernaum when his son was near death, or raising up this paralytic to walk on his own two feet after he's been crippled for 38 years, or in a few chapters, raising Lazarus from the dead after he's been dead for several days. When we see Jesus doing these miracles, we are not to see Jesus as just doing an isolated incident of blessing for a few people. He is claiming that the miracles we see him doing point to something much bigger that he is able to do for anyone, anywhere, At any time, Jesus is able to raise you and me from the dead too. And he presses his claim home to our hearts very personally in verse 24. These are wonderful words. Look at them, please, in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. It's breathtaking what Jesus is promising here. If you hear the words of Jesus, if you listen to what Jesus is saying, Offering life to those who are dead in their sins, and you trust in Him and in the Father who sent Him, you have eternal life. Not just sometime in the future, but right here, right now, He doesn't say, not, He does not say, you will pass from death into life in the future. He says, you have already passed from death into life. If you hear the words of Jesus and believe in him, you have nothing to fear at all. No wrath remains for you to face. You're sheltered by his saving grace. You're safe. From the judgment of God on your sins, even though you still sin, even though you still struggle, you have eternal life, Jesus says. The judgment your sins deserve has already fallen on Jesus, and you've already crossed over from death into life. So even though you will die physically, death is not the end of your story. One day everyone will be raised from the dead physically. Physically. But Jesus is saying that right now you can be raised from death spiritually and that the physical resurrection in the future is simply going to be the culmination of the eternal life that you've already entered into now. Eternal life is your story if you hear the voice of Jesus and believe in him. In him is life, amen. The life is the light of men. But there's another side to the authority of Jesus. It's sobering. But it's essential for us to understand. Jesus wants us to know that just as the Father has given him authority to give life to those who are dead in their sins, the Father has also given Jesus the authority to judge the world in the end. Jesus has the authority to judge. We see it in verse 22. For as the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. And then he underscores it in verses 27 to 30. Look at that. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good, and by that Jesus means the good of believing in him, and the fruit of good works that flow out of that faith, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil, that's refusing to believe in the Son to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the part people don't want to hear. But Jesus is not afraid to say it. The Bible, in fact, rejoices that one day Jesus is going to come again and he's going to set right all that's gone wrong in this world. One theologian puts it like this. Bringing new creation to birth can only be done if the evil that has corrupted the old creation is named, shamed, and dealt with. That's what judgment is all about. Naming, shaming, and dealing with all the evil that's corrupted this earth. You wouldn't want to live in a world without judgment. You wouldn't want to live in a world where evil can run wild and never be called to an account. A world where a blind eye is turned toward injustice and there's never anyone who can make it right. And The good news Jesus is telling us here is that he is the son of man. Of Daniel chapter 7, to whom is given a dominion and a kingdom that will never end, and the authority to judge the world. And one day, everyone is going to stand before Jesus. The Father's purpose in entrusting to his Son the authority to judge is crystal clear. In verse 23, why has the Father given this authority to his Son? Here's why that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. This is God's purpose, that all may honor the Son. And God is going to make sure that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No one will be able to hide from Jesus. No one will be able to make excuses. Either you will bow before him as the sovereign Lord and giver of life, who is your Savior, or you will bow before him as the sovereign Lord, who is your judge. Which brings us to the last point this morning. How will you respond to the claims of Jesus? Jesus makes it very clear in the last section what he is hoping our response will be. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. That's what's in the loving heart of the Savior of the world for you and for me this morning. He is saying these things to us today so that you and I may be saved. Yet Jesus also laments that many of those who are hearing him say these words are going to reject him. They're going to stubbornly refuse to believe in him. Jesus says it's even possible to know a whole lot about the Bible and still refuse to believe in him. That's what's happening with many of these people who are listening to Jesus make these claims. Look at verse 39. Jesus says, you pour over the scriptures. You search the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. Everything in scripture is pointing toward me. Yet you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. What kept them from coming to Jesus? What could possibly keep you or me from coming to Jesus that we may have life? Jesus tells us what could keep us from coming to him in these words. What could keep us from coming to Jesus is loving human praise more than the glory that comes from God. Listen to Jesus' diagnosis of their unbelief in verse 44. He says to them, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? In other words, it's dangerously possible for us to care far more about what we think of ourselves and what other people think of us, then we care about what the Father thinks about his Son and what Jesus himself tells us about who he is. We can be so wrapped up in our own thoughts of ourselves and human approval that we turn a deaf ear to what the Father is telling us about his Son. And Jesus is saying, The praise and glory that comes from God starts with honoring the son whom the father loves. Jesus clearly did not come merely to be a good moral teacher. He claims to be much, much more. My question for you today is, will you listen to who Jesus says he is? Will you receive who he claims to be? And will you give him the honor That is due him. Will you love him the way the Father loves him? I want to close with the famous words of C.S. Lewis because they express so well the heart of what Jesus is saying to us this morning and what I hope every one of us will find in our hearts in response to him. Lewis said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. May we do so from our hearts this morning. Let's bow before him.